Good evening, everyone. I'm Brendan Boyle. I'm the Associate Dean for Graduate Programs at St. John's College, Annapolis. And I would like to welcome everyone to this evening's lecture, which celebrates a unique and special partnership forged by a unique and special scholar. Before I say a word or two about that scholar, Alan Hornstein, let me first thank our colleagues at the University of Maryland Carey School of Law for all the work they put into setting up this event, Shara Boonshaft especially. We're very, very grateful for all your hard work. Let me also say how delighted I was to meet such a distinguished group of graduates and future graduates of these two unique institutions. The work you are now doing as alumni of both programs is itself a wonderful testament to this partnership. We are here this evening because of Professor Alan Hornstein, longtime faculty member at the University of Maryland Carey Law School. I'm sorry not to have known Professor Hornstein, but I spent some time over the last month reading both his work and tributes to his work. Somewhat surprisingly, although I think this probably won't be a surprise to the Carey folks in the audience, the first piece I encountered in a tribute was a 200-line poem written by another member of the faculty called The Raven, that's R-A-V-I-N, modeled on Poe's The Raven. The author of this poem, The Raven, is one David Bogan, from whom I'll be stealing shamelessly in this introduction. If anyone knows him, please give him my thanks. Here's the first stanza. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis Alan Hornstein, I muttered, <laughs> tapping at my chamber door, once again to say, say more. That refrain, say more, runs through the entire poem and seems to have been a favorite of Alan's. Here is the fifth stanza of the poem, my favorite. Much I've marveled at his, Alan's, much I've marveled at his power to make any student flower, though their answer little meaning, little rev relevancy bore, for we cannot help agreeing that no other human being has been so blessed with seeing light that others all ignore. But Alan sees it, wrenching insight from the answer's core with two words, simply just say more. Say more, it's such a simple phrase, two mere monosyllables, but one of great power. And a phrase that, happens to, that one happens to hear with some regularity here at St. John's College, students and tutors alike learning from and with one another simply by asking each other to say more. Indeed, I've long thought that say more could be the motto of our college. So committed are we to listening to one another in just the way it seems Alan always did. Say more is also much snappier than what we've now got, which is a lot of punning in Latin. <laughs> All of this simply makes me think that there is a deep kinship between Alan and St. John's, a spirit of inquiry, of invitation, of interdependence. All of it prompted by this simple request to say more. So we thank Brenda Hornstein, whose generosity has made possible this collaboration of saying more across two institutions. There is, however, one person to whom no one ever says, say more, and that's the introducer in that instance, in this instance, me. <laughs> so I will only briefly say that we are delighted to welcome tonight's lecturer, Professor Peter Danchin, Jacob A. France Professor of Law and Director of the International and Comparative Law Program at 
Maryland Carey School of Law, where he's been teaching since 2011. Professor Danchin has written widely on human rights, religious freedom, and global security. This evening's lecture is titled, Who is the Human in Human Rights? I had half a thought that the title itself is a kind of variation on the request to say more. Human rights? What human? Say more. More about a word that seems too familiar to require investigation. But investigation tonight we will have. And so we all very much look forward to learning from Professor Danchin and in what I hope is the spirit of Alan Hornstein, invite him now to say more. Thank you, thank you very much, Brendan, for that very warm and generous uh, introduction. Uh, I wandered over here this afternoon and, and came into this hall. It was completely empty, but I found this, this pamphlet, St. John's pamphlet, and immediately saw the, uh, the front, which said, the most contrarian, intellectually curious, and quirky college in America. And I thought, I've found my intellectual home. Um, and uh, it really is an absolute delight and pleasure to be here this evening and to present this, this second lecture in the St. John's College and Carey Law, uh, Law and Liberal Arts Lecture Series. <clears throat> the first lecture was actually presented last year by my colleague, uh, Gabriella Carl, who's here uh, this evening. Um, and she, in fact, is currently turning her lecture last year into a wonderful article on legal advocacy and the vital role of listening. Um, and perhaps I may try to do the same thing uh, after tonight with this lecture. Uh, Gabriella has been really indispensable in forging this relationship between the two schools and will this coming fall be teaching a St. John's style and St. John's inspired uh, jurisprudence seminar with Judge Albert Matriziani at, at the law school and, and we're extremely excited that that's come out of this uh, collaboration. I'd really like to thank everyone for making the time uh, to come this evening. I know. Uh, People have busy schedules and it's the, it's the dog days of summer. Uh, there are many former and current students I see, some who I haven't seen in 13 years we worked out. Uh, so thank you very much. And, and I also wanted to thank my colleagues, both at the law school and at St. John's, for organizing uh, and making possible tonight's lecture, particularly Shara Boonshaft at the, at the law school and Emily Langston here at St. John's, uh, really for all your efforts in making uh, tonight possible. I'd like to begin also with just a few words like Brendan uh, about the significance uh, of tonight's collaboration uh, and the legacy of Professor Alan Hornstein, who really was an extraordinary professor at, at Maryland Law School, as, as we heard. Uh, for over three decades, uh, Professor Hornstein taught generations of law students and future lawyers, uh, and he really forged an early path in interdisciplinary collaboration uh, as a visiting a tutor here at St. John's College. Uh, Professor Hornstein became and was a master of the classic Socratic method. He was an active faculty member who contributed to many committees and served in leadership roles, including as interim dean. Uh, he was an extraordinary scholar with expertise in contracts, evidence, and jurisprudence, and was really a key figure in integrating theory and practice, which is what's distinctive about the curriculum at the, at the law school. Shortly after his retirement in 2004, Alan and his wife Brenda established the Hornstein Endowment to promote this relationship between the law and the humanities and specifically support collaborative activities like tonight's reception and lecture. Sadly, Professor Hornstein passed away in 2020, but we are really grateful for this opportunity to remember Alan, further his legacy, and continue to build this connection between the two schools and ultimately between the study of law and of the humanities. And that's what brings me to my topic for tonight's lecture. Uh, who is the human uh, in human rights? And what I wanna suggest is that this question lies precisely at the intersection of law and the humanities. So I'd like to begin by quoting two articles that may be familiar to many of you 
from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, adopted by the, the UN General Assembly in 1948, uh, which many lawyers and indeed humanity scholars, I would suggest, today regard as a kind of global Magna Carta. I looked at Amnesty International's website before coming this afternoon, and their document refer, their website refers to the UDHR as a document that acts like a global roadmap for freedom and equality, protecting the rights of every individual everywhere. So we see this in the Declaration. Article 1, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They're endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. And the second article is Article 18. Everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. Now, much as I hate to admit this, I've spent the better part of a quarter of a century trying to understand these otherwise simple and apodictic 16 words, uh, sorry, 11 words. Uh, the everyone in Article 18 refers, of course, to the human beings referenced in Article 1. This is the idea I want to suggest of the human as the subject, the proper and ultimate subject of rights that has become so powerful and widespread in our time, not only in law, particularly constitutional and international law, my two fields, but also in the humanities, especially in moral and political philosophy and in international relations. Today, efforts to promote and protect this right globally are literally ubiquitous. In the United States, religious freedom is often described as the first freedom, a fundamental human right, the sine qua non of modern democratic politics. Repeatedly, we are told that Americans invented and perfected religious freedom. And in the period since the end of the Second World War, and, and, and especially since the end of the Cold War, the United States has made it a priority to export this right in its foreign policy. We have today, for example, a Commission on International Religious Freedom, whose mission is to advance this right by independently assessing and unflinchingly confronting threats to this fundamental freedom. If we look out into this body of practice and norms, we see an escalating number of actors in both national and international bodies promoting religious freedom across state boundaries. Legal guarantees are embedded as riders in trade agreements, aid packages, and humanitarian projects. Diplomats are taught how to persuade their counterparts to safeguard religious freedom. And NGOs just down the road in Washington both rank and index countries according to whether they meet putative global standards of religious freedom. The United Nations Human Rights Council has for years now had a special rapporteur on freedom of religion, monitoring and ensuring compliance with these norms uh, as they've developed since 1948. So this is the first picture I want to paint for you, if you like, a, a very mainstream story of progress and progressive realization of a fundamental right and freedom in both US foreign policy and in much contemporary international law. But that is just the start. Uh, there is a second, less idealistic and perhaps much more critical story or counter-narrative that a far smaller group of critical scholars in both international legal theory and humanities fields, such as cultural anthropology, religious studies, and intellectual history, the main areas that I've had collaborations, uh, tell a, a different story. And this narrative proceeds broadly as follows. Human rights, at least in the specific form they have assumed today, have tainted Western liberal origins. The West embodies a particular legal tradition premised on a stridently individualistic account of moral personality, and the universal rights asserted by powerful states, not just the United States, but also many West European states, are just therefore another form of imperialism. Universalizing the tenets of a distinct tradition or we might say a distinct legal culture, being illiberal, if you like, about being liberal, forcing people to be free, as the famous uh, uh, phrase has it. Such arguments challenge, challenging the claims to universality of human rights law 
raise obviously difficult and controversial questions. But what I want to argue this evening is that these are the questions that urgently demand our serious intellectual and practical engagement rather than arrogant dismissal. David Kennedy at Harvard Law School, for example, points to the fact that human rights have a particular time and place of origin, post-enlightenment, rationalist, secular, Western, modern, capitalist. The work of Sam Moyne in this area is well known to many. And Kennedy has therefore argued that to the extent that the international human rights project is linked to Western ideas about the relationship among law, politics, and economics, it is, in his words, part of the problem. Now, I have to tell you that the article that Kennedy wrote advancing this argument caused an absolute furor amongst academics and human rights activists alike when it was published. For Kennedy, the main difficulty is the way that human rights positions itself in accordance with its rationalistic underpinnings as an emancipatory political project that operates outside of politics. The implicit logic is that emancipation means progress forward from the natural passions of politics into the civilized reason of law. The urgent need in Kennedy's view to develop a more vigorous human politics is thereby sidelined. And work to develop law comes to be seen as an emancipatory end in itself, leaving the human rights movement, and this is the famous phrase, too ready to articulate problems in political terms and solutions in legal terms. Precisely the reverse, Kennedy suggests, would be more useful. In other words, to see the problems we have in our legal ordering uh, and to seek solutions in the political sphere. Similarly, for the Finnish international lawyer, Marty Koskiniemi, the paradox of human rights law is that it aims to create a space for non-political normativity in the form of rights that would be opposable to the politics of states, but is undermined by the experience that what rights mean and how they can be applied can only be determined by the politics of states. This is the basis for Koskiniemi's thesis of the interminable dialectic between the universal and the particular in international legal argument. So with that introduction, let me return again to the title of my lecture. Who, who is the human, who is the subject of human rights? And by asking this question, I wish to suggest that these kinds of modern critiques advanced by scholars like Kennedy and Koskiniemi force us to really confront at least two conceptual puzzles in the field, which really, I think, goes to the heart of many issues so pressing and controversial today uh, involving the claims of culture and religion. So let me turn to those two puzzles uh, and lay them out for you a little bit. The first concerns the two concepts often run together of the secular, and here I'm referring to an epistemic category, not secularism as a political doctrine, uh, and the idea of freedom. And the related question of how rights, here the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion, mediate between these purportedly universal or objective positions and the imagined subjective claims of particular religious or cultural norms. So let me make this a bit more concrete and provide two examples that I've worked on for many years. The wearing of the Islamic headscarf in public schools and the rights of Muslim minorities in European nation states more generally have been, as you well know, subjects of acute and often angry debate in recent years. In particular, France, with its own conceptions of laicite and individual rights, strong individual rights tradition, has sought to restrict the wearing of religious symbols in parts of the public sphere on a number of grounds, including public order, the rights and freedoms of others, and gender equality or the protection of women, especially girls, against discrimination. So that's one example. The other striking example uh, uh, of contestation and conflict and very, very heated conflict in rights discourse occurred in the context of the so-called Muhammad cartoons affair. In September 2005, the Danish newspaper Jyllands Posten published 12 editorial cartoons depicting the Islamic prophet Muhammad, uh, in some as a, as a terrorist, 
uh, leading to widespread and violent protests, both in Denmark and across the Islamic world. In the US, the weight of opinion, legal opinion particularly, has favored, of course, free speech as against any countervailing right to freedom of religion and has favored the individual right to expression as against any countervailing group or minority rights to be free from discrimination, hostility, or violence. It's almost universal agreement, actually, on that position. In Europe, we see something slightly different. There's been a somewhat generally greater sensitivity shown to these countervailing factors. European states have made genuine, albeit inconclusive, I guess leaving out France, uh, attempts to reconcile the competing claims of right at issue in terms of both the historical context of European intergroup relations and the relevant uh, human rights instruments. If we look, however, at the so-called Islamic world, the vast majority of Muslim-majority states, we see there a consensus, an almost, again, universal consensus, that the cartoons are part of a wider pattern of discrimination and hostility towards Muslims in Europe, in particular, and defamatory of Islam in general. On that basis, uh, sorry, on the basis that defamation of religions is inconsistent with the right to freedom of expression, the organization of the Islamic Conference has now for uh, over a decade called for legally binding UN resolutions to prevent defamation of religion and prophets and to render all acts whatsoever defaming Islam as offensive acts subject to punishment. So this, this picture gives you a sense of what's happening in the international sphere around these questions. Now I should make clear up front that my own view is somewhat in the middle, uh, favoring the eclectic, more value pluralist nature of the European position. By considering both the individual and collective interests protected by the right, what I wish to suggest is that we can just begin to see some of the unarticulated premises and particulars masquerading as universals in much uh, writing that we see in this area today. But irrespective of how such cases are to be resolved in domestic legal systems, how should we think about this as a matter of human rights theory and of human rights law? Does the communicative act at issue here, or perhaps the failure of a state to prevent or punish such an act, violate human rights norms regarding religion and belief, or is it rather an act protected by rights such as freedom of expression and opinion? Similarly, in the case of wearing the headscarf, on what possible grounds might a state limit the freedom to manifest one's religion or belief? What in particular would we need to know in order to make such determinations? And why do we see such striking divergence on these questions across the world? In the language of Article 1, how should human beings born free and equal in dignity and rights, endowed with the faculties of reason and conscience, resolve such seemingly intractable uh, and culturally contingent conflicts? How, at a deeper level, do we understand the relationship in Article 1 between the human as subject and the concepts of reason, conscience, and freedom? This struck me as a great question for a St. John's audience. Are conscience and reason perhaps the two argumentative positions captured in our singular notion of right, a notion which somehow straddles between the human as subject and some kind of either transcendental or metaphysical notion of freedom? If so, how exactly does this argumentative structure work and how does it differ exactly from pre-classical thought, which was premised variably on notions of God or nature? So let me try to address this question, uh, at least in, in general terms, by drawing on my work, which has sought to trace and understand the intellectual genealogies that lie beneath the right to religious freedom in moral, political, legal, and increasingly theological thought, which I'm most interested in. The central question that I've asked is whether it's possible at all to have a universal theory of religious freedom, which can link together these deep controversies over three core issues involving the subject, object, and sources of normativity of the right itself. 
Is it the individual who is the necessary, as a matter of fact, or perhaps as a matter of uh, 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 ideal, uh, in theory, who is the subject uh, of the right? And what exactly is the object of the right? How could we know the answer to this, other than by simply expl explicating the meaning of conventional norms? When the international instruments speak of thought, conscience, religion, and belief as the object of this right, they do so as if these terms are necessarily conceptually related and can be understood in some obvious way. What I've argued is that mainstream discussions tend to define the problem before us as managing and protecting a plurality of religious traditions, often at odds with each other, rather than recognizing both plural and incompatible conceptions of religious freedom internal to the structure of the right itself, as well as plural and changing conceptions through time. I've sought to ask what happens when we recognize and face up to this deeper, not just epistemological, but ontological pluralism that we see raging in the field. So consider the following. The conventional uh, narratives that we see in the field rest on two central tenets, particularly in political theory. First, that the political and legal authority of the state must be secular in order to ensure neutrality towards religion and secure the necessary separation of religion and politics, which is said to be foundational to liberal democratic governance. I call this the neutrality thesis. Second, in order to ensure neutrality towards both religion and non-religion, the same authority must guarantee the right to religious freedom, understood as a religious right, so that individuals and communities may practice their faith freely without coercion or interference. I call this the universality thesis. This, I think, is fairly uh, unobjectionable. The difficulty in the jurisprudence is that each of these uh, theses is deeply internally conflicted. If we look at recent scholarship on secularism, for example, we see that the idea of neutrality and the neutrality thesis is simply no longer tenable. Rather than withdraw from the religious domain, the modern state constantly intervenes and seeks to reconfigure substantial, substantive features of religious life by distinguishing the properly religious from what is not in order to render certain practices indifferent to religious doctrine and bring them under the domain of civil law. And there's a huge body of work that tracks this development in the, the growth of the modern state. The result is the constant intertwining of religion and governance as modern secular power operates incessantly to determine the scope of religion in the political order. Has anyone noticed that every year there's a new case under the First Amendment involving establishment and free exercise? And every case that comes up raises this question for the court or others to determine these lines about the proper place of religion in the state. The legal anthropologist Hussein Agrama has brilliantly tracked the same phenomenon in states like Egypt, where we see precisely the same phenomenon, although in a very different context. If we look at the universality thesis, we see a similar uh, difficulty. In fields as disparate as legal anthropology and intellectual history, the idea that the right to religious freedom is neutral towards religion or protects all religions equally is completely rejected. Again, if you look at the modern scholarship, it's, it's quite striking. Rather, it's much more accurate to say that the right to religious freedom purports to treat all right holders equally. Now, this is a critical distinction that I wish to, to argue for you to uh, argue about tonight. In this move, a seismic shift occurs in the relationship between notions of both normativity and authority. The genius of modern discourse rests on the fact that each of these two theses is defined in terms of the other, in a kind of mirror effect. On the one hand, the neutrality of the political order is said to be secured by the guarantee to protect the right to religious liberty. But in this move, and this, again, there's a, there's a wonderful body of work now that, that I think has shown this, particularly scholars like Talal Assad and Sabah Mahmoud and Winifred Sullivan, they've shown that the disciplinary structure and secular practices of the public sphere 
combine to produce what we might call the believing subject as rights holder and concomitant Protestant, broadly Protestant conceptions of religion, religion understood as a matter of faith or belief, especially in relation to scripture and rituals and religious subjectivity, particularly moral and ethical sensibilities. In fact, when you read the literature, you often see the words faith and belief repeated time and time again, believers or uh, uh, questions of individual faith. On the other hand, the universality of the right is said to be secured precisely by the neutrality of the public sphere towards religion. The state and the courts are directed to apply a principle of neutrality in adjudicating claims over the right. This requires the state constantly to either recognize or limit manifestations of religion, generating the, the, the distinctive entanglement of religion and law in different domains of the public and private spheres. And of course, in the United States alone, we see this in many, many areas of, of public life uh, and state regulation. So if we take this picture and we look deeply at the conceptual understanding of this right, we actually see an internal bifurcation or distinction into two quite distinct spheres. On the one hand, there is what's called the forum internum, which is regarded as absolute. And if we look at much of the, the work that's gone into understanding this, we see it's an unstable co-imbrication of ideas of individual autonomy and belief or conscience that combine to define this, this sacrosanct or absolute inner sphere. This, I want to suggest to you, is religion in its rational form. Rational religion, as the Kantians amongst us would say, internal to the legal subject, and thus presuming or depending on a very particular conception or genealogy of rationality. Now, I would like to just pause for a moment uh, and ask what would it mean to think of the term of terms such as individual belief or conscience considered internally not to the individual subject or believer, but internally, say, to a halakha or sharia-based tradition of moral and religious thought. If religion in its rational form is the proper object of the right, can we even speak meaningfully today of entire discursive traditions encompassing their own sources, justifications, and hermeneutics and conceptions of identity, membership, and practice as being the objects and subject to the regulation of a legal regime of equal individual rights? I think this is a very helpful question to ask because we, I think we can immediately see a problem. If we turn to the second sphere, we see, at least in legal terms, what's called the forum externum, the place of religious manifestation or practice which is open to limitation by the state in the forms of restrictions on the manifestation of religion under such rubrics as public order, a genealogy that traces to the early modern civil enlightenment tradition, or the rights of others, which traces to the later 18th century uh, enlightenment tradition of Kant. This in, is what Ian Hunter has referred to as the sacralization of reason and is what defines much modern liberal rights discourse in the kind of Rawlsian mold, uh, for example, in ideas of public reason. This, as well, rests on very particular forms and genealogies of ideas of reason or public reason. Now, if I could bring these two ideas together, what I want to suggest is that this double structure between the rationality of the forum internum and the public reason of the forum externum generate two paradoxes that we constantly see. The first is that by defining the neutrality of the public sphere in terms of the right, the authority of religion is almost uh, imperceptibly privatized relative to the authority of the state and normatively interiorized relative to the subjectivity of the individual. All of this happens uh, almost uh, before our eyes, but we have to pause to actually see it. The second is, and as a result of this, that re religious freedom is secured through subordination of religion 
to the power, secular power and public reason of the state. By defining the meaning and scope of freedom protected by the right in terms of secular neutrality, the claims of individuals and communities to religious liberty are in fact limited through a continuing praxis of legal recognition and regulation. This is what we teach our students in law school classrooms, how to apply cases and principles to achieve the, the most reasonable and acceptable forms of legal recognition and regulation. And this structure I want to suggest is what generates the three key controversies concerning the subject, object, and justification of the right. And this sort of bursts to the surface and when we see in most disputes involving religious freedom that both sides to the dispute assert the right, right? Uh, and the, some distinctions then have to be drawn as to which claim is to be given uh, ascendance over the other. So as a thought experiment, consider for a moment what the concept of religious freedom might look like if this dialectic between neutrality and the right was severed, or at least qualified. Is it even possible to conceive of uh, neutrality or related concepts of fair treatment toward religion independent of individuals as rights holders? Consider, for example, the many direct, contingent, and constantly negotiated relations between political authorities and religious groups, communities, and institutions. And that's, in fact, what we see in most uh, practice around the world. Similarly, is it possible to conceive of a fundamental right, such as religious freedom, not external but internal to discursive legal uh, religious traditions, rather than as standing somehow ahistorically and rationally external to all religious forms of subjectivity. If the drafters of the Universal Declaration, whether René Cassin of France, John Humphrey of Canada, or the Harvard-educated Peng Chun Chang of China, had an Enlightenment view of human rights as somehow located in human beings simply by virtue of their own humanity, as it's often put, and for no other extraneous reason, such as social conventions, whether religious, uh, religion, tradition, or custom, acts of governments or decisions of parliaments or courts, what does this tell us today, now 60 years later? Unlike lawyers such as Hirsch Lauterpacht, who wrote his 1950 monograph, International Law and Human Rights, in an uh, explicit effort to recapture the Western canon of individual rights, as derived not only from Enlightenment thinkers, but also from 16th century religious humanism and even Stoic dogma. Koskinyemi today argues that we no longer take seriously the tradition within which human rights grew up, but, it, but instead have fragmented an older tradition by appropriating parts of it while leaving behind crucial premises that gave these parts their underlying coherence. And he thus suggests we have a unique type of incoherence in our discussion about rights, uh, particularly the right to religious freedom. As a result, rights have become, for Koskinyemi at least, a kind of sentimental memory of a political faith we no longer have, a love we have lost perhaps, but cannot fit within the rituals of modern politics. At worst, they've become a facade for cynicism uh, or an instrument of uh, hegemony. Without a universal foundation in human nature or autonomous human reason, many would say today that the quest for an ultimate foundation for human rights is itself perhaps misconceived. And of course, this kind of anti-foundationalism we see in the field is very, very distinctive in much modern writing. Alastair McIntyre famously argued that the Enlightenment project has failed in its objective to find a freestanding rational justification of liberal political morality. On the one hand, the individual moral agent, freed from hierarchy and teleology, conceives of himself and is conceived by moral philosophers as sovereign in his or her moral authority. On the other hand, the inherited, if partially transformed rules of morality have to be found some new status, deprived as they have been of their older teleological character and their even more ancient categorical character as expressions of an ultimately 
divine law. Uh, and of course, it's, it's interesting when you read the literature on Kantian philosophy, the idea that inspired Kant so uh, deeply, I think, of trying to advance a, an almost divine theory of reason, a, a pure theory of reason, if you like, that could fill this role in the modern context. Well, if McIntyre is correct, and of course many disagree with his argument, what are the implications for the question that I'm asking this evening? Did the drafters of the Declaration really in fact hold to essentialist views of the foundations of human rights? And here I think it's quite helpful to turn to the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, who has asked what it would mean to come to a genuine, unforced international consensus on human rights. Taylor has suggested that this would require different groups, countries, religious communities, and civilizations, although holding incompatible views on theology, metaphysics, human nature, and so on, uh, that they would be able to come to an agreement on at least certain norms that ought to govern human behavior. Each would have its own way of justifying this from out of, profound, from, uh, out of its own profound background conception. So the idea for Taylor is we would agree on the norms while disagreeing on why they were the right norms, and we would be content to live in this kind of modus vivendi consensus, undisturbed by the differences of profound underlying disagreement. The strength of this approach, of course, is that it avoids the need for a commonly held foundation. It indeed accepts from the outset the impossibility of any universally agreed foundation, whether as a product of religiously inspired convergence or some kind of rational deontological deduction, uh, at least for the norms and principles that govern the public sphere. It accepts that those who adhere to the norms that are agreed will have some broader and deeper understanding of the good in which it's embedded and thus aims to respect the diversity of these understandings while building consensus on the ethic. Such a paradigm shift, if genuinely pursued, would obviously have significant implications, not just for the scope and content of human rights, but also for how we justify them in political practice and how we express them in legal forms uh, in, in and beyond states. So I think Taylor's idea uh, is worthy of our critical reflection. So finally, let me then turn more briefly to the second puzzle in human rights theory, what we mean by human equality and how this idea relates to deeply situated issues of collective religious and cultural identity. Of course, a huge subject that I can only barely uh, address tonight. So let's consider again laws prescribing the wearing of religious symbols in certain parts of the public sphere. Under traditional liberal approaches, the controversy over the wearing of the Islamic headscarf appears somewhat inexplicable. The liberal view conceives of toleration as the principle according to which everyone should be free to follow his or her ideals and style of life as long as no harm is done to anyone else. Headscarfs do no harm to any third party, and the choice to wear one for whatever reason rests in the proper domain of personal freedom. This simplistic approach to the case suggests that toleration is the obvious solution, but in doing so, it disguises, I think, the raison d'etre of the controversy. Viewing this issue solely in terms of individual rights, i.e. individuals are free to practice their religion, provided the practice does not cause harm to others, as I said, obscures the collective religious and cultural implications of symbols such as the headscarf. Members of different national, cultural, and religious groups have differing national, cultural, and religious identities, that is to say, collective identities, which need, I would suggest, to be factored into interpreting or analyzing rights claims of this kind. Indeed, what gives rise to conflicts between differently situated subjects are not, I would suggest, primarily differences between individuals, but differences and unequal treatment between groups. Scholars in human rights law are today, I think, recognizing how these divergent claims and interests of both majorities and minorities and the different conceptions of individual and collective goods from which they arise are inseparably related to individual claims 
of right. Correspondingly, it's becoming apparent that the so-called liberal algebra of rights, regimes, is unable to resolve such conflicts without considering at least some point in the, the analysis different conceptions of collective goods in the historical context of particular political communities. So the one argument I want to make tonight, and perhaps it's, I'm not sure how, how many will agree or disagree, is that whoever the human in human rights is, it's not the liberal subject, or it cannot be the liberal subject alone, that we need a far more complex uh, and contextual understanding of what we mean by the human as subject, as a subject of rights. In order to illustrate the importance of the collective aspects of claims to religious freedom, we need therefore to delve into a generally under-theorized and contested area of the law known as group rights. Here we see the need to accord public recognition of group differences and identities. And this challenges two central tenets of the liberal rights tradition, two tenets that are deeply resisted, I would suggest, in places like my law school. First, the idea that comprehensive conceptions of religious and moral value are solely private matters to be excluded from the public sphere of civil life. And second, the idea that religious freedom requires no more than non-interference with the individual's imagined sphere of liberty, as opposed to public recognition of a plurality of different uh, religious and cultural groups and ways of life. So let me just conclude with an example of what I'm talking about. The demand of the Muslim community in India, for example, for an autonomy regime and legal recognition of religious and other personal laws is a demand against the Indian state for substantive equality on the basis of religion or belief. Many of you may have heard of the famous Charbonneau case. It involved a conflict between a Muslim personal law requiring the return of the marriage settlement upon divorce and the payment of maintenance only for the period of Ida, uh, which conflicted with the Indian Code of Criminal Procedure, which requires monthly maintenance in, uh, in specified situations of need. Now this conflict erupted in political violence and controversy across India. What I want to suggest to you is that in this case, we face a genuine conflict, not between a liberty claim on the one hand, the, the right to religious freedom of the Muslim community, and an equality claim on the other, the right to equal treatment and non-discrimination of the female uh, applicant. What we actually see here are two competing conceptions of equality. One conception of equality protects India's Muslim minority against other majority and minority groups and the other protects the equal rights of women in India, regardless of their religion. We need to be careful not to recognize automatically or privilege the second substantive equality claim without factoring in the first. And that really is the key point uh, I, I want to uh, argue for. We may ask whether the ultimate goal sought under the twin banners of secularism or equal individual rights and gender equality, as argued famously by Susan Miller Oaken, is for systems of religious personal law to disappear altogether and to be replaced by a uniform civil code. And of course, many scholars today make these kinds of arguments. Ironically, in order for the state to be right in its codification of the demands of substantive gender equality, it must ignore or simply override the nuanced and contested internal arguments within the religious communities themselves. My argument is that there are strong normative reasons why the state ought to exercise considerable deference to the arguments going on in that sphere, and that the struggle over the status quo ought not to be decided solely by the state, according to what prevailing national ma uh, majorities, recall here the, uh, the uh, intolerant and threatening role of the Hindu right, for example, in India, or by judges, bureaucrats, uh, or academics. Of course, how such claims are to be mediated is essentially contested, but requires at a minimum an intersubjective and dialogic understanding of rights discourse. I won't go into it now, but I can speak perhaps if people are interested in the question time about my work over many years now to develop 
an argument for the recognition of Muslim marriages in South Africa, including the recognition of Muslim personal laws under the contemporary uh, South African constitution. So in conclusion, if, if the plurality of conflicting values in cases such as this uh, is to be mutually respected, rather than uncritically dominated by a single master value, conflicts between equality norms and collective identities must be interpreted and intersubjectively discussed in continuity with each society's historic traditions and reference points. Of course, any such claims raise complex uh, and difficult conflicts between equality norms on the one hand and religious and cultural freedom norms on the other. A value pluralist approach to such questions opens the possibility of new forms of hermeneutic circle and diverse forms of fusion of horizons. And this I would hope and would argue for opens up the possibility of less dogmatic and binary accounts of reason and religion by viewing both, by viewing both as human institutions and social practices requiring modes of justification uh, and accountability. In order for this to occur, however, and this is perhaps a controversial point to end with, the primary obstacle, or at least a primary obstacle, is the inability of many Western rights theorists to see their culture, particularly their legal culture, as one amongst others. To an extent, Westerners see their human rights doctrine as arising simply out of the falling away of previous countervailing ideas that have now been discredited in order to leave the field open for our current preoccupations with human life, freedom, and the avoidance of suffering. But as Charles Taylor has memorably written, only if we in the West can recapture a more adequate view of our own history can we learn to understand better the spiritual ideas that have been interwoven in our own uh, development and hence be prepared to understand more sympathetically the spiritual paths of others towards what is arguably the converging goal. So thank you very much, and I look forward to thoughts and questions.